Seed embodies life, power and culture. From Africa's deserts and drylands to its mighty river systems and tropical forests, Seed provides the mainstay for the continent's 500 million small-scale farmers and is at the heart of rich and varied cultures. But Seed is under siege, with the world's food and agricultural systems increasingly industrialised, homogenised and privatised. In this episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Ideas Research Fellow Dominic Glover interviews Rachel Weinberg about her new book, African Perspectives on Agroecology, Why Farmer-Led Seed and Knowledge Systems Matter. In the podcast, they discuss the critical voices of African farmers, activists, scientists, scholars and policymakers, whose viewpoints combine to articulate a shared and dynamic vision of a world where agriculture is productive, diverse and sustainable where different ways of seeing and knowing are respected and where seed and food systems are in the hands of farmers and local communities. My name is Dominic Glover. I'm a fellow of the Institute of Development Studies and I'm happy to welcome Rachel Weinberg to IDS in person in three dimensions. I had the great pleasure of visiting you in South Africa last year and it's great that you're back here for a return visit and also for the happy occasion of your new book being launched. So let me just briefly introduce you. You are a uh, a research chair and you're based in the Department of Environmental and Geographical Science at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And the book that we're going to be talking about today is called African Perspectives on Agroecology why farmer-led seed and knowledge systems matter and that's recently published by practical action publishing in the uk so welcome rachel thank you dominic it's lovely to be here (laughs) so uh, let's get straight into talking about the book um african perspectives on agroecology perhaps you could tell us uh, a little bit about how the book project came together in the first place a little bit of the background i gather it took a long time is that right to come together It's taken some time because it's part of a very long-term collaboration that we've had. Um, Starting probably in 2010, when we did some work on farmers' rights and had a parliamentary uh, working group on farmers' rights, and it attracted quite a lot of attention. And one of the... Soon after the, the workshop, I received a phone call from a funder who was really interested in pursuing this idea of local seed systems and how they were being managed and supported in the Southern African context. And that really began a very long partnership, um, which has now been going for 10 years, just been renewed for another five, called the Seed and Knowledge Initiative. Um, We had just emerged victorious. So I, in addition to being a UCT academic, I'm also, I guess I'm I'm unapologetically a scholar activist and I've been involved with many NGOs and social movements over the years. One of which was an NGO, is an NGO called Biowatch. And Biowatch had emerged victorious from a battle against Monsanto around uh, contested access to information about genetically modified crops. And that had led to an investigation about the policies and laws that were affecting smallholder farmers um, and their ability to save and use and exchange seed. So while these these ideas were unfolding and while we were having these debates uh, with parliamentarians and others, 
Swiss funders had become alerted to the ideas and were really interested in supporting this kind of work. We had a phone call, surprisingly, usually one has to approach funders. In this case, they approached us and asked if we were interested in putting some ideas together for a, a, a program to support smallholder farmers, but not only within South Africa, which is where we had historically worked, but also regionally, with a focus on protecting smallholder farmers' rights to save exchange, uh, use their seed, and also restore their seed systems. So that's, that's, that was in 2010, and that began the Seed and Knowledge Initiative, and from, from thence we embarked on a series of research projects through PhD students, postdocs, masters, as well as a series of seminars, bringing people together to discuss these issues. Um, and as the work progressed, we realized that there was a much bigger story that needed to be told, and that really was the genesis of the book. So let's talk a little bit about the book and its uh, components. It is an edited volume. You're the editor of the book. Uh, and it has, I think you told me earlier that um, about the organization of the book into these three sections, which are seed, resilience, and diversity. That's part one. Part two, privatizing profit, socializing cost. Uh, part three, ways of seeing and knowing. Part four, transitioning towards agroecology working together and moving forward the struggle. Mm. Perhaps you could say a little mm. bit more about the, how you see those uh, four themes of the book. Sure. But maybe just to take a step back in terms of the collaboration, and I want to say from the get-go that this is, you know, I might be named as the editor, but this is really a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. It's involved about, I think, 33 different authors coming from a very wide range of perspectives, those farmers, NGOs, academics, policymakers, gene bank managers, a very wide range of disciplines. Um, and so you'll see it's an unusual book. You know, it's not uh, your typical sort of academic treatise about uh, theories and how they're applied or not. But it's, it's, it's eclectic. <laughs> There's some short boxes which are contained within the themes that you mention, which focus on sort of very practical components. There are also some more academic and conceptual aspects. Uh, and they all are hinging around, so, so the Seed and Knowledge Initiative has 15 partners. Um, UCT is the only academic institution, the others are all NGOs. So in, in one way or another, they are linking to the experiences of those different partners but also going afield, further afield and, and drawing on other experiences. So just, just to set the context for that, uh, the four sections, would you like me to talk perhaps about the first one, which is really around seed, seed resilience and diversity. I, I think it's, it's almost the, the mother chapter because it's sure, quite foundational. Let's, let's talk about the mother chapter. Yeah. And, and this is, so it's fitting to open the section with Fakazile Mtetwa, known affectionately to many as Gogo who lived in the hills of Kwababosa in northern KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. And she was a passionate advocate of agroecology. She was a fearless critic of the industrial food system. Uh, with her, a, a quote of hers uh, opening the book, how do you claim to be free if you're not in control of what is in your plate? Uh, I've got a very vivid memory of her. We had a, a conference on agroecology in 2019. 
and she opened the conference, uh, not necessarily by invitation, just by in, in her her passion uh, for for agroecology, with you know a dance and a song and just you know her her liveliness. I think imbued that conference with the relevance of what we were all grappling with. So, so that sort of sets the scene, I think, in many ways for the book, um, following an introduction which tries to synthesize some of the connecting themes. Alfreda Sean Strauss, who, who is a well-known advocate of agroecology and has worked with civil society organizations for, for many years, then takes us on a very evocative journey across Southern Africa where she relates vividly how seed and the cultures and knowledges of small-scale small African farmers um, are important not only as nourishment, but also in the celebration of, of culture and in the reinforcement of kinship and of social relations and in supporting agrobiodiversity and livelihoods. And she talks about how the violence against uh, indigenous knowledges and against the natural world has had cascading negative impacts on community cohesion, on identity, on farmer autonomy, on livelihoods, on landscapes, and, and she also talks about the overall resilience of communities in the face of these adverse adversities. But even so, farmers have continued to practice multiple strategies to safeguard their seed, which range from innovative storage methods, which have been passed over generations, um, relationally very complex methods of exchanging seed, which we, we still don't know very much about, through to the maintenance of agrobiodiversity in their fields. And food and seed sovereignty have emerged as this very strong counter-paradigm to the ecological damage and the deep inequities that have been created by the industrial agricultural system. And she talks about the emancip emancipatory potential of these paradigms and, and how they're going to require active support and engages with the question of well, what does it take then to trans transform agricultural and seed systems to another paradigm? Um, and, and she suggests that maybe applying resilience thinking to communities and their seed systems could help to deepen the appreciation of, of the qualities and the elements that support their vitality. So it's a very generative chapter. I think it's a it's very rich as well in in the experiences, her experiences um, of working in the region. So so in terms of the structure of the book, that first chapter, the way you've the way you've uh, talked about it there, it maybe is, is is more important as a foundation than the introduction itself. So that 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 first chapter sets the scene. Uh, for the entire book, including its own section and the other three sections, is that...? No, I think it's one part of this overall section on seed mm. diversity and resilience. And the, the, what the introduction does is weaves together the four themes, whereas this is focused on the first theme. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and it's followed by a, a, a really um, quite devastating but also hopeful chapter on Cyclone Day, which raged through Zimbabwe, yeah. uh, where Jackie, uh, witness Kozenai, who's now at Marindira University in Zimbabwe, and Jackie van Nikuk at the University of Ta Cape Town, talk about how the cyclone tore through eastern Zimbabwe in March 2019, affecting about 80% of the arable land in the Chimani Mani district, which is in the eastern part of Zimbabwe. 
and they provide this fascinating account of how local people drew on their social networks as a part of the recovery process. Um, they shared resources to rehabilitate damaged landscapes and infrastructure and to restore lost seed. And really interestingly and importantly, seed exchange um, and knowledge became even stronger post Ade, past, post the cyclone, because households developed these solidarity networks and strategies to rely on each other rather than on government or on external agencies. Uh, or the private sector, which had often delivered and still does often deliver inappropriate, expensive and untimely seed. So that chapter underscores the importance of implementing agroecology at a landscape level and especially in the face of unpredictable climate patterns, but also is candid about some of the challenges of landscape governance uh, in the context of competing land uses, multiple institutional layers, political interference, in unstable uh, governance, and so on. So that's, that's a, uh, it's a really interesting perspective on sort of the, the shocks that communities have to endure through climate change and increased occurrence of cyclones and so on. Yeah. And, and, the, and the theme of resilience, which is, which is part of that first section of exactly. the book is, would be central to that uh, yeah, recovery after cyclones and so on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then there are two other parts that are, that are linked to this first section. The one, um, the one is drawing multiple strands across a common theme, and that's of maize. Mm -hmm. So in a maize, we hear about this crop that so-called uh, both feeds and robs. You know, it's, it's a really important staple crop for many African communities, smallholder African communities in particular. Uh, it's not an indigenous crop. It was brought over from the Americas about 400 years ago. But that's something that's really fascinating about maize in, in southern Africa, isn't it? That it's perceived as being uh, a, 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 a sort of almost as an indigenous crop. It's so important to the culture and to the landscape and to the food system. And yet it is actually an import from 400 years ago. That's a, that's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it, from a sort of world historical point of view. Exactly, mm. exactly. And it's got, I mean, you're, you're familiar with James Scott's work where you know, he talks about it as a commodity crop, crop but also this escape crop. Mm -hmm. So it's got these two lives. Mm. Uh, and you see that in farmers' fields as well, is often there's a, there's a field that's for commercial sale but the household isn't really interested in eating it. It's the hybrid crops that don't taste very nice. Mm. And then there'll be a household garden with local varieties, which are much tastier, more nutritious. Mm. Still maize, mm. but typically not the, the improved varieties. It's yeah. more the ones that have been passed over for generations. So just for the sake of uh, listeners who, who might not be familiar with those concepts of commodity and escape crops, so commodity, I guess we could define more as being a, a crop that's produced for sale not for home consumption, its uh, value is in the, in the exchange value, in the market price that you can generate. Whereas the, in, in Jim Scott's concept of the escape crop, it's something that is, supports a livelihood which is more independent and more oriented towards um, uh, self-sufficiency to, uh, um, and also to maintaining autonomy and um, maybe separation from, uh, from government authorities and, and from mm -hmm. dependence on markets. Is that, is that more or less...? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. Thanks for elaborating. And, I mean, what's, what's fascinating is that 
We've looked at case studies in Malawi, in Zambia, in Kenya, and the story of maize is is remarkably similar across all these countries. Um, Paul Hebbink, the late Paul Hebbink, and Richard Kiaka in one of the chapters uh, talk about how maize was promoted as this driver of modernization to propel development and foreign investment, in this case in Kenya. But in Malawi, in Zambia, and elsewhere, the state has essentially sponsored multinational agrochemical and fertilizer companies and seed companies by introducing subsidy programs for synthetic fertilizer and hybrid maize seed. But well, I think what is what is quite astonishing, and it's something that I think we haven't adequately understood, is that despite this overwhelming policy support for the formal seed sector, many farmers are continuing to save their own seed. So in the face of this drive to commercialize and uh, change local seed systems, there is still this uh, very rich tradition of, of saving seed. Um, so cases from Gen in this book, cases from Kenya, I won't go into all of them because it's. I think it would take up too much time, but rather just to point to some of the commonalities in Kenya, in Ghana, in Malawi, they're all pointing to how farmers are excluded and indigenous knowledges are excluded in the design of climate-smart agricultural solutions um, where the existing market-based approaches and gender inequalities are simply exacerbated and inequalities continue to be um, aggravated, existing class and gender inequalities. And we've just come from a seminar, which maybe you want to refer to, where we, we heard the same story. Yeah, mm -hmm. Very similar story. Yeah. Very, in India, so mm -hmm. in a, in a completely different context, but the same story. Um, so they suggest that, so they conclude with, with this work that the ongoing transformation of local seed systems directly undermines seed sovereignty and contradicts sort of a more transformational agenda which is based on agroecology and supporting local knowledge systems and um, local resource-based agriculture. Yeah. And then the last chapter um, is about South Africa and it's a chapter that I wrote together with a colleague, Angelica Hilbeck, mm -hmm. who works on genetically modified seed. So South Africa was the first country in Africa to commercialize GM maize, or GM, GM anything, actually. But it was the first country in the world to commercialize a, a staple crop, which in this case is maize. Mm -hmm. I think about 95% of our maize now is genetically modified. Mm. When you refer to the staple crop, you mean white maize, or is it just uh, because the, the the industrial maize tends to be uh, uh, destined for um, uh, for livestock, or or it's uh, sweet maize, right? Have I got that right? Or yeah, both both are genetically modified, but mm -hmm. it's it's typically the the white maize that is eaten as a staple. And the white maize is eaten as a staple, and yeah. that was also genetically modified, yep. which does make it in the sort of global picture of. Um, genetically modified crops that were commercialized in parts of the global south or in, in, uh, in Africa, South Asia, that makes it stand out as an un unusual example. Exactly. Because mostly yeah. the GM crops that were commercialized were cotton, and um, at least in those parts of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So cotton was also introduced into, into South Africa and yeah. was adopted. Mm -hmm. 
um, by many small-scale farmers. It's largely been abandoned now by small-scale farmers um, who incurred terrific debt, and it just it, it wasn't a viable crop for them for various reasons. But what we do in this chapter is we look in particular at maize and issues around the contamination of maize. Um, and what, we, what we're showing is that even though farmers have intentionally in some cases chosen not to plant GM maize, their crops, maybe 10 to 20 percent of their fields are contaminated with GM maize because they're obtaining seed from their neighbours, there might be cross-pollination, maize is quite a promiscuous crop, they might be feeding uh, GM maize to their chickens, so in various ways maize is infiltrating uh, their local seed systems. Uh, and I mean, this is quite well known in South Africa, in Mexico, and, and elsewhere. Um, but I think what isn't as well known is the psychological trauma that certainly we encountered when we started to work with some of the smallholder farmers who are affiliated with Biowatch um, around their knowledge of their fields being contaminated because Angelica was doing testing of their fields and revealing um, high, high levels of contamination. Yeah. So Angelica is actually a molecular biologist. She is, she, yeah. She uses genetic testing technologies to explore these issues of gene flow between transgenic and, and uh, indigenous varieties and so on. She does a lot of work in Europe as well as in, exactly. in places like South Africa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's really, that's the first section. There are also other, there are smaller think pieces that are scattered throughout about particular aspects of food and seed. There's a, a piece about um, the links between seed and food security. You know, does one necessarily need to lead to the another? There's a piece about the role of gene banks written by the manager, former manager of the Zimbabwean gene bank. There, um, there's a wonderful piece from Dr. the late Dr. Malakabu Warede who was responsible for establishing the first African gene bank in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia and is renowned for his contribution to the conservation of agricultural biodiversity and for helping to restore food security uh, in Ethiopia after years of drought-induced famine. And he observes in a, in a lovely quote that small-scale farmers are the original plant breeders. Mm -hmm as they employed selective breeding to raise yield, improve quality, and promote diversity long before formal plant breeding became an established discipline. Mm. Um, so we were very privileged to have him in one of our seminars, and we captured his contribution through a, an oral recording and then transcribed that for the purposes of the book. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that... that um the, the, the point that he was making, evidently, was um, something which I, which I find really uh, intriguing because the, the, um, the agribusiness uh, companies that have, and, and others who've uh, constantly tried to promote genetically modified crops have often argued that it's no different from the traditional practices of uh, domestication and plant breeding that were practiced by farmers over many years. But, um, you know... If, if you look at it purely as being about molecular biology and the transfer of genetic material between organisms, then you can possibly subscribe to that argument. But actually, when you look at all the other aspects that go into the production of genetic diversity and, and, and crop varieties, absolutely everything about it is different, in, from, from the personnel to the skills employed to the locations where the work gets done 
to the um, the kinds of uh, institutions that surround that, in, including um, uh, intellectual property rights mm -hmm. and the governance and regulation that surrounds it, and the sorts of the flows of, of capital and, and money that uh, surround it, and issues of access and benefit sharing. So. Almost everything about it, the timescales of, of the transformation of crops and so on, and the the nature of uh, of the, the the ownership of the genetic resources. So practically everything about these these two concepts is different, and uh, yeah, yet um, industry players and others have tried to sort of uh, argue that. Um, that genetically modified crops don't deserve to receive so much scrutiny from the public or from regulators because it's just the same as, as these traditional time-hallowed uh, practices of, of domestication of plant breeding. Exactly. So it's interesting that you included a sort of powerful counter-argument to that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think what we're also doing is, is through the next section, is really looking at this dichotomy between uh, sort of the heavy investments in research and development, mm -hmm. largely supported by the private sector, yeah. the diminishing uh, investments in public sector breeding for, for public interest, and the disregard often for those kinds of knowledges, uh, which has been trumped to a large extent by the, by the biotech industry. Yeah. Um, and that's this next section which we call privatising profit, socialising cost. Yeah. We, yeah. So I was just going to comment, um, uh, because it was one of the observations that I made, was that actually the remaining three sections of the book are a little shorter, so that mm -hmm. that first section is, is forms a sort of substantial chunk, I'm not sure how many pages it is, but yeah. maybe half the book, and then yeah. the remaining chapters in the other three sections are a little bit shorter. Is that uh, was that a deliberate strategy, or was it? Did that kind of emerge organically out of the the development of the of the contribu contributions to the book? Yeah, no, it was very much an organic evolution. We had the contributions, and then we tried to work out what made mo most sense in terms of organising mm -hmm. uh, the pieces. And I think one could have cut it several different ways, mm. but this one seemed to tell the story the best. So let's talk a little bit about part two: privatising profit and socialising cost. Yeah, so this one is opened by Stephen Greenberg, who used to work with the African Centre for, for Biodiversity and has worked for many years on critiquing industrial agriculture and the investments that are made in it. And he describes how commercial seed markets morphed from a base of small-scale businesses to these large-scale multinational corporations that I think we all are very familiar with today in terms of the ways in which they've integrated biotech agrochemicals and seed and, and increasingly food systems as well and have set the stage for the extraction um, of wealth based on proprietary rights. You, you referred to intellectual property rights which are a cornerstone of the strategy rather than the resource itself and then therefore the subsequent enclosure of what used to be a commons, um, this seed of knowledge for private gain, which Jack Kloppenberg talks about extensively in much of his work. So the cheapening of, of land and natural resources, uh, the so-called four cheaps, which Jason Moore refers to, um, systematically denigrate the knowledge and the resources of smallholder farmers as backward and obsolete, um, which is a narrative we're really trying to change in this book mm. um, and uh, put the record straight so to speak 
Uh, also, it was accompanied by the systematic dismantling of public resource of state state sector support for agriculture and increasing embracing of market-led approaches to agriculture and the R&D associated with agriculture, which has included the privatization of formerly state-owned uh, seed companies. We're seeing this across Southern Africa for sure and the subordination of public plant breeding to commercial imperatives with a focus on commodity crops like, like maize and like soya. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, it's, it's a long chapter. It's, it's, uh, I think it sets the scene very well in terms of what we are dealing with. It's not, I don't think there's necessarily anything uh, surprising in, in what we're hearing there, but it's, it's, I think it's important contextual information. And it's followed by David Fig looking in detail at what's going on in South Africa. So we've heard a lot about state capture in South Africa, which refers to the way in which uh, corruption has become embroiled in the system in, in all manner of ways. Um, and he refers to, to corporate capture of agriculture within the context of this and how pro-corporate laws and policies have continued to prevail and how they failed spectacularly to address hunger and health security and environmental protection in, in South Africa, with a quarter of the population going hungry every day and about half at risk of hunger in a country that's often seen as sort of fairly well, well industrialized and uh, not at risk of those problems. Um, and then it's followed by Morgan Lee, who you know. I do, yes. <laughs> Maybe you want to talk a little bit about Morgan. <laughs> well, uh, was Morgan's work was uh, a large part of the reason why I visited South Africa last year. And uh, I think um, she's doing some fascinating PhD research, which is looking at the, uh, the how to put it, the sort of the potentials and the challenges for the commercial agriculture sector to move towards more sustainable practices but it's uh, enmeshed with some of the kind of political economy and the policy issues that you've just been talking about, the, um, the entrenched nature of uh, conventional modern industrial agricultural processes and how difficult it is for, certainly for individual farmers and even, even for sectors to shift to more sustainable practices and how that's often, that uh, claimed transition is often surrounded by rhetorical claims about the, the, the changes taking place that are, um, to, to a certain extent, disconnected from what's actually happening mm -hmm. when, you, when you go out and, and look on the ground. Mm -hmm. And yet there are, um, I mean, together with Morgan, we visited some, a, a public agricultural research station with some really fascinating um, low external input uh, methodologies for managing fodder crops, for example, as part of an integrate, integrated farming system. So there are these elements of um, less corporatized, mm -hmm. uh, less industrialized, more, uh, I guess you could call them broadly speaking, agroecological, at least in an agronomic technical mm -hmm. sense. Uh, those kinds of examples exist. But anyway, I mean, her, her research is really fascinating, and um, yeah. I was really glad to be able to spend a little bit of time with her in the field. Yeah, and really, I think we're looking forward to, oh. to seeing it get out into the world. And this particular piece was, was a little bit before she started her PhD, mm -hmm. when she was still doing her master's looking at the agrochemical industry in South Africa, and she was demonstrating the structural violence that it elicits. Mm -hmm. Uh, South Africa's, I think, got about 2% of global agrochemical use, which is pretty substantial. 
uh, with about 4,500 agrochemical products that have been registered for use in the country, many of which are banned elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there's this pesticide culture of non-interference which has emerged with a seemingly complicit ar uh, arrangement between government and industry and a wall of silence that has precluded effective public participation. So that's that's the essence of this chapter. It reads it's got it's quite disturbing reading actually, when we realise how far we still have to go. You are listening to an episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast. For the full set of episodes, please visit www.ids.ac.uk forward slash podcast. Um. Rachel, at this point, I'm not, and uh, this, th please don't take this as a criticism, but mm. I think it's an interesting observation about the book. Before we go into talk about uh, parts three and four mm. of the book, mm. it's it's observable, certainly looking at this particular section of the book, but at other at the overall balance of mm. the chapters, how dominant South Africa is in mm -hmm. this book, which is about African perspectives on agroecology. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Now, is that something that you're uh, sort of aware of in the construction of the book, and and do you think it stems from uh, your positionality and, and the and the networks that you're part of, or is it also reflecting the empirical reality of South Africa's importance, certainly in Southern Africa, as uh, um, a, a, an important player in the, in the continent's agricultural and food systems, and as a major exporter, but also as a site where some good quality research is undertaken, and so on. I mean, what, to, to what do you attribute the the prominence, let's say, of South mm, Africa mm, in the book. Mm. I think it's a combination of, of what you've mentioned. I'm not sure it's so prominent. <laughs> mm -hmm. I okay. think some of the chapters, maybe the ones I'm familiar with, I'm talking about more. But I think there are only three of the chapters in the book that are dealing directly with South Africa. But okay. certainly, I think its influence on the rest of the region is significant. I think there's some really important lessons that are emerging from South Africa. Yes. Uh, Rachel Besner-Kerr and I have just written a piece about the lessons we can learn around GM contamination for Malawi, uh -huh. which is about to introduce GM crops into the country, right. and trying to think about agriculture as a sort of a, a colonial construct, but also the ongoing colonialities of agriculture and how that's influencing the uptake of GM crops in those two countries. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So yeah, I think that's just an example of how we can apply those learnings. But yeah. I'd like to think it's not South Africa-centric. Maybe the rest of the book will persuade you, Dominique. Okay, let's get, um. into, let's get into the rest of the book. So the next section is called Part 3, Ways of Seeing and Knowing. Maybe you could comment a little bit on that uh, framing before you get into the chapters. Yeah, and the, again, it, refer, it, it relates back to the earlier comment I've just made about how these ongoing colonialities of mm. agriculture. Mm which is it's not only in the way colonialism happened in Africa, but it's the way in which coloniality com continues to manifest in, for example, power relationships, in the dominance of one knowledge system over another, namely Western science, uh, over local knowledge systems and approaches, in the domination of nature, not whereas I think many uh, local cultures see nature and culture as an integrated mm -hmm. whole, rather than the separation, which I think we, we've typically seen in a more Western context. 
Um, and then in the ontologies, so the ways of being and worldviews, which are typically dismissed. So we're seeing the, in this section how cultures of violence extend beyond those that are epitomized by the agrochemical industry and are also embedded mm. in the exclusions and in the epistemicide that accompanied the colonization of the African continent. Mm -hmm. And it starts off with Vanessa Farr, who's a gender specialist, reminding us of how women's caregiving, agricultural and food gathering practices, their knowledge and activities have been rendered unimportant and unmeasurable. With local localized knowledge systems, she says, routinely sacrificed as a homogenous agricultural world order is imposed, mm. brought about through settler expansion and the forced relocation of communities mm. to inferior soils. I thought was a very profound statement. And it's followed by Jen Whittingham, Maya Marshak and Heidi Swanby, all of whom have done distinct pieces of work on gene technologies, demonstrating how the political and ideological machinery that supports genetically modified crops has been aggressively promoted and how other ways of knowing and being have been pushed to the peripheries of decision-making processes which recognize only what they call the one world world, mm -hmm. which I'm sure is a concept that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then there's a really beautiful piece from, from Walter McGovey, um, who is an integral part of the Cedar Knowledge Initiative. He's, he's from Zimbabwe, and he recounts how his grandmother farmed in South Central Zimbabwe and grew an array of local crops and fruit trees, and this all changed when the government extension officers arrived and advised farmers to remove all their trees from their arable land and to plough it uniformly. And 20 years later, his grandmother has just become a modern farmer, he says, who purchases chemical inputs and mostly grows just maize. Mm. And he recalls that things only seemed to get worse as the transformation was accompanied by deforestation, soil erosion, siltation, dependency on external inputs and malnutrition. Mm. It's a very sort of powerful story there of, of change. Yeah. And alongside that, there's the other experiences that are recounted um, about the, the critical role that extension workers play in, in advising farmers and in affecting farmers' behavior, where we have a, a series of contributions about curricula in different agricultural colleges, and then some very inspiring initiatives um, by Shepard Mutsingwa about new curricula that are being introduced to train a new generation of agricultural extension workers. And this, this learning by doing approach, which has been implemented among Sky Partners through what they call the community of practice, which includes exchange visits and training and practical examples. And we had a, a wonderful meeting just two weeks ago in Chimani Mani in, in Zimbabwe, where 45 people gathered together to start to exchange experiences and, and really build on this community of practice, which has developed, um, which has led also to some very practical outcomes, like the uptake of small grains and a strengthened focus on soil health and landscape restoration. But also, importantly, to, to some more process-orientated outcomes like relationship building, mm. um, personal growth. I think being a, a very inspiring demonstration of some of the possible changes that we can affect. Mm -hmm. Great. 
So that brings us, I think, to part four. Yeah, it does. Transitioning towards agroecology, working together and moving forward the struggle. So yeah, I guess this is sort of where things go from from here onwards, is that right? Is that how you would frame that last part of the book? Yeah, and it's 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 a counter, I think Raj Patel described this book as a counter to Afro-pessimism, mm-hmm. which I really liked. And mm-hmm. I think this, this part of the book is trying to do that. Yeah. And is a sort of more of a promising look forward to to what alternatives can we can we dream about mm-hmm. and can we already see? Um, and then the first part is Mvu taking us on a very exciting journey to to Cuba, where he did his sabbatical. He's a farmer and he's a lecturer at the University of KwaZulu Natal, um, developing a very inspiring farm in the hills of KwaZulu Natal. But this chapter is about Cuba, so it's not another one about South Africa. <laughs> um, but he's talking about their farmer-centered and farmer-driven sustainable agricultural model, which has fundamentally transformed the country's food system, and how a local agricultural innovation program in Cuba plays greater control over seed production, management, and distribution in the hands of farmers themselves. And this stimulated a conversion to low input farmer focused and a sustainable farming system. Um, and there's also a piece about Malawi uh, around how small steps around agroecology and promoting agroecology, agroecology can make a big co- contribution to people's health, written by Kristen Norden, mm-hmm. with some nice practical examples there. And then a final chapter, which is written by Heidi Swanby, which articulates the roots and the evolution of the African of African food sovereignty. So agroecology is often thought of as a science, mm-hmm. a practice, and then a social movement. Mm-hmm. So this is really tackling the the social movement component of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she shows how the African food sovereignty movement emerged from multiple actors and networks of actors based in African fields and informal settlements. She says, and in kitchens, mm-hmm. and in local seed fairs, and how they extended their reach to affiliate with ever larger networks. Um, which has been growing from strength to strength in a very wonderful way, with sort of African voices also becoming an in- integral part of regional and international policy spaces, which, mm-hmm. which wasn't the case for many years. Yeah. What do you think the, the book's main contribution is? I think one of the contributions that it's made is, is this ability to bring different voices together, mm-hmm. which is quite unique certainly from an academic perspective, and I don't think it's something we do very often, and it's quite hard to do mm-hmm. because of the different styles and the different approaches and the Absolutely. different worldviews. Yep. Yep. So to me, that is quite a unique component of, of the book, in addition to some of the messages that it shares. Um, and then in terms of the messages, I think there are some, some remarkably common experiences, actually, and themes that are emerging. And the one is that we know agroecology can work, but it doesn't get the kind of support that it needs. Mm-hmm. And if one could redirect the enormous investments in agriculture that are being made on the African con- continent towards supporting more agroecological approaches, we could make some good headway. Yeah. So that, to me, is, is an important message. Yeah. And just as a reminder to listeners, the book is called African Perspectives on Agroecology, and I'm wondering... What do you think uh, the book contributes in terms of um, uh, 
illuminating and documenting and presenting a distinctly African take on those aspects of agroecology that you've just been talking about. Mm. And do, do you feel that um, the book contributes something which uh, is um, distinctive about Africa compared with the way agroecology debates occur in other parts of the world? Um, do you think it contributes something to the global conversation about agroecology which uh, was was lacking uh, from existing perspectives yeah I think it, it in some ways it amplifies what we know already in in other ways it is unique in that I think Africa at the moment is the recipient of an enormous amount of development aid hmm. and we're seeing how that aid can be very inappropriately directed so really important lessons there about philanthropy. I mean, AGRA is a case in point. Mm. Uh, becoming an enormous influence on the African co continent in terms of the, the kind of programs that governments are embarking on. We just did a piece of work on AGRA showing that almost all of its decision-making is sitting in northern-based institutions, despite it's it, it saying that it's an African-led institution. Very far from the truth. So I think really important questions there about philanthropy, the role of philanthropy, development aid, donor aid, um, imposing external agendas on, on farmers by answering the long, wrong questions with the wrong tools. Mm -hmm. So that perhaps it's not unique to Africa. I mean, we know that we, we encounter similar situations elsewhere in the global south. Mm -hmm. But I think in Africa it is particularly acute because of the high levels of poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another component is around the different ways of seeing and knowing and learning. Again, it's not necessarily unique to, to Africa, but I think African cultures are just are so remarkably diverse and that tends to get ignored when one is uh, promoting different forms of agricultural development. So thank you, Rachel, very much for coming to IDS and uh, talking to us about this new book, and uh, congratulations on the publication. Thank you, Dominique. It's been a pleasure, and thanks for hosting me. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.